There are a lot of us out there, solopreneurs, subject matter experts, and leaders of service businesses. Many of those pros know their business but haven't cracked the code on finding clients and customers. Our guest became CEO of an engineering and consulting firm at age 28 and says he often stared at the ceiling at two in the morning, wondering where the next client would come from. Then he studied sales and marketing, eventually grew the firm's revenue by a factor of 10, and now works with other businesses. And he's here to share systems for attracting your ideal customers. It's Steve Gordon, founder of The Unstoppable CEO on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations. Those are the ones that generate by far the most and most effective word of mouth. That means more growth in your revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. On this program, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. First, the message itself, the words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. My new book is from Career Press. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, And if you want to read some sample content before buying, then you can find the introduction and the first chapter on my website at jimcar.com slash books. We're here to share insights and ideas because, well, simply put, it's a lot easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. Today, we're focusing on conversations and conversions, especially if you're in a service-based business and don't consider yourself a marketing expert. Our guest is Steve Gordon, a best-selling author founder of The Unstoppable CEO and host of The Unstoppable CEO podcast. Through his firm, he helps service business entrepreneurs grow revenue while also spending less time on business development. Steve was in the fire early on at age 28. He became the CEO of an engineering consulting firm. Admittedly, he didn't know much about marketing or selling services, but over the next 12 years, he grew the firm's revenue by 10 times. Then Steve started a second business, consulting with other service businesses across 30 different industries. Steve is a fellow University of Florida alumnus, Go Gators. Go Gators. Yeah, Go Gators. He graduated with a degree in surveying and mapping. So Steve, I'm sure we can expect some ideas for setting a clear marketing path. And as Steve promises, pre-selling your ideal clients. Steve, welcome to the Manager Message Podcast. Hey, Jim, it's great to be here. And we're right before football season as we record this. So I'm excited to get back at it as a fellow Gator. So outstanding. Excited to dive into the topic today, too. This is going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, you know, this is all subjective, Steve, but I think it's pretty objective truth that college football might be the best sport around. But again, we'll let the science dictate that. It's a great conversation. I've been looking forward to this, Steve, because you have 
lived this hamster wheel yourself. As someone running a service-based business, you came out with technical expertise, I assume really good services and offerings in that engineering consulting firm. And yet you're saying, look, I don't, didn't know a whole lot about marketing and sales. And you've gone through it yourself. Now you work with a lot of other service business entrepreneurs. So just to start from the beginning of where a lot of these people find themselves, what do you see these service business leaders struggling with the most these days? In most service businesses, you get, you know, you go to college or you get trained to practice the delivery of whatever business that you're in, but they forget to tell you that before you can practice and deliver, you have to sell something. And when I came out, I don't know that it was shocking, but it was certainly a skill I didn't have. I came into a firm. I was the 10th employee in the firm. So we were small. The founder had kind of gathered up some really great clients, but we didn't have marketing. We didn't have a real defined sales process. We got most of our business by word of mouth. And the way that we experienced that was some days the phone would ring off the hook or some weeks the phone would ring off the hook. And we'd be like, wow, something really interesting's happened here. And then other weeks it'd be crickets. And we didn't really have any particular influence over when it rang and when it didn't. And it becomes a really scary way to live inside of a business when you don't know where that next client inquiry is coming from. And Steve, I hear a lot of business owners, business managers, they're in similar kinds of situations and they will assert, and I think it's true, theirs is a relationship business. And yet there's this gap between the relationships you have, the people who you know, but also some predictability in terms of the growth of the business and the conversations that can actually lead to growing the business in a predictable way where you don't have so many of the ups and downs. So how do you counsel people in the position you found yourself in to say, yes, you're in a relationship business. Yes, you know your stuff, but how do we get from waiting for the phone to ring? Well, you've got to understand that creating those relationships doesn't just happen by accident. And it took me a little while to really come to grips with that. Early on, I thought, well, we just do really great work. And so people will come to us. That doesn't really work out except in movies, right? <laughs> you know, so we then realized, okay, well, we've got to go out and we've got to create relationships. Well, how do you do that? Well, one method of doing that is, you know, dialing for dollars. And when I came out of school, it was right before the internet became a thing. We didn't have the internet for about a year at that company when I got there. So, you know, you would either go to a networking meeting or you would get a referral that would start a relationship, you know, and in a lot of businesses, you're told to just go make calls, either literal phone calls or drop-ins and face-to-face and all this other stuff. And all of that's great. I tell people all the time, if the marketing union ever found out that I say what I'm about to say, they'd take my card. But you can give me a marketing method or a tactic, and I will find you an example of it working somewhere. I guarantee you, they all work. And that's one of the big dangers, especially now when there's a billion ways to market and to start a relationship. They all work. What you have to begin to think about is what kind of relationship do I need to support the type of commerce that I want to do? And that really comes down to how much trust is required of me, how much familiarity is required in the relationship. What does the depth of that really look like? Every business has a relationship with their customers. You know, 
my wife and I, we buy a lot of stuff from Amazon. We have a relationship with Amazon, but I don't need to have the kind of relationship with Amazon that I need to have with a financial advisor who's going to manage all of my wealth and my financial health for the rest of my life, right? Or a doctor who's going to treat a condition or someone in my business that is going to come and provide a service where I'm going to invest a lot of money and I'm expecting a result that I'm depending on. And so you need to begin thinking about what's the level of relationship that I need to create and then what methods are likely to help me create that successfully. And I'll give you a good example of the mismatch of that that's happening a lot these days. So in business to business selling right now, you see two approaches that I think are really difficult to make work. Again, we could all go find examples of them working. Somebody's made it work, but that doesn't mean it's going to work broadly. And the examples are the LinkedIn messaging. And what I love is the automated stuff, right? I got one this morning. Somebody requested that we connect. I pretty much connect with everybody that asks. And I accepted the connection and I immediately, like within, I don't know, 60 seconds, get a message back from them that's about a page and a half long and it's a pitch. Now, interestingly enough, they were pitching me on the exact service we deliver for clients. So they hadn't read my profile, right? And I know they hadn't because that was a bot that did that. You know, and so here they are, they're trying to pitch me on a service that they probably want me to spend 10, 20, 30, $50,000 a year on with them. That is probably one of the most critical functions in my business. It's the sales and marketing function that they want to help with. And they're hoping that because I accepted a connection request and they sent me a really long pitch that somehow we're going to have enough relationship for me to hand over that kind of cash. I don't think that works. The other place we're seeing this a lot is with Facebook ads. You know, they're all the rage these days. You go run an ad, the high ticket funnel that it, you know, it's called is you run an ad that goes to an automated webinar. The automated webinar is designed to get people to book an appointment. Now we've run something like that before. It can work, but to really build the relationship that you need, there's actually a lot more that has to happen. In fact, we ran that process for a while. And what we found is we got really bad clients out of it. So, you know, you've got to think about what relationship do I need? And then how do I go about creating that? What's going to give me the greatest likelihood of creating that kind of relationship? Steve, I think those are great examples to some larger points. And I was cringing and nodding my head as you were talking about, first of all, that automated LinkedIn reply. And I encourage people, our listeners, the people that I come across, do connect with me on LinkedIn. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful tool for building relationships, for doing research, for communication. But I have had that same thing happen to me. And I'll get someone, and we have a few shared connections. They ask for a connection without really giving me a reason. I take the leap of faith. I accept the connection. And for me, Steve, it was about four nanoseconds before that long message came back. And the other, we can get to the Facebook ad example as well. I think in many ways, it's the larger issue that automation of a bad process or automation of something that doesn't have a good strategy behind it just creates more noise, right? You can do the wrong thing more quickly and efficiently. I'd like to follow up a little bit on what you were talking about with that second example for your business and that high ticket funnel through Facebook. You said we were drawing bad clients or bad prospects 
in all of that. Can you unpack that a little bit for us, Steve, in terms of knowing in advance, I mean, who really is the right fit? I would imagine for your kind of business, you should have developed a pretty good idea of whom we best serve in the right way, who will value what we do and is going to be a more likely conversion for us. It's not that we weren't attracting people that on the outside looked like our ideal clients. We were getting those people. That's one of the beautiful things about Facebook and the ability to target is you can find pretty specifically who you want and you can do the same thing on LinkedIn. The reason that they were bad clients is because we were rushing them through a process Mm -hmm. that actually takes time. So they weren't getting into our email list and listening to our podcast for a little while and attending multiple presentations before they converted into a sales meeting and before we sold them something. And everybody wants to rush, rush, rush into the sale. But the longer I do this, the more I realize I want such a well-educated prospect by the time they get to me that they understand that not only that they've bought into the problem that they have, that I know that they have, that we're educating them on. They bought into the fact that there are a lot of solutions out there, but the solution I'm offering is uniquely right for them. And I want them to buy into me and my firm. I want to be their guy before we ever talk. And that was why they were bad clients. They weren't properly prepared. And that was our failure. I see. Then we stopped doing that. We stopped doing that. It's not that we won't ever use Facebook ads again. We're just going to use them very differently and use them to help get all of that educational content in front of those people so that actually we will end up accelerating the process, the sales process over what it would be otherwise, but we're going to do it in a way that educates them so that when they get to us, they're ready to become a really great client because I had this experience in that first business. I mean, we had when I left that business, we still had the client that was there on day one who had been there for a decade before I came around. And that wasn't the only one that we'd had for a really long time. I think our youngest client was maybe about five years old. So I want people who are buying into this philosophy that we have and that are buying into us. They're buying our worldview and believe in it because those clients are going to stick around for a really long time. And that's going to ultimately lower my total cost of client acquisition and increase my profits. I imagine that is what you refer to as pre-selling ideal clients. If you could talk about that a bit, and it's very interesting as you say, hey, look, we're still using some of these same tools. We just are being patient with them. We want those to be available. We want to be able to have the right conversation at the right point of a prospect's decision-making process. Have you mapped that decision-making process out and the kinds of messages and the kinds of conversations that you find most appropriate? We absolutely do. I mean, and the way to do that is to start at the end. If you know you want to have a really great, perfect client that's going to stay with you for a long time and is going to create repeat business, it's going to buy into your worldview, your philosophy of how you do things, and then is going to buy into it to the degree that they're going to go out and talk about it to other people because they think it's so great and so important. You know, if that's ultimately what you want, because that's likely the best type of client for the health and growth of your business, then you got to start from there and begin working backwards. What has to happen before they get to that stage? Well, they probably need to become a client. And how is that going to happen? What kind of conversation do I need to have with them? What kind of solution do I need to present to them? How do we onboard them? What has to happen then before they book that meeting and have that first conversation? How do they get to that point and just walk it all the way back to 
somebody's a total stranger, they never heard of me, they've never heard of our firm, what's the way we're going to introduce ourselves or the ways that we're going to introduce ourselves and then bring them in? And you've got to walk it all the way back through that. I'm curious as to whether your experience, and especially with all the clients that you work with, Steve, match this sort of pattern. And what I often see is that sellers begin their conversations with the, hey, here's why we as the seller are great. Here's our differentiation. Here's how long we've been in business. Here's our solution set. Here's how it works, et cetera, et cetera. Without helping identify for the prospect in their language, the problems that they're actually trying to solve. How do you plug in to the right points for that decision-making process without getting impatient? It's a difficult problem. I mean, we all want results, you know, and we live in a society that is geared to getting immediate results. And sometimes in business, the practicality of it is because of cash flow and for whatever other reasons, you need to create results very quickly. And, you know, I've always sort of tried to look at playing two games and trying to figure out how do I play two games simultaneously? So, yeah, I got to have short-term results. And I'll never forget when I started this business, you know, in the first business, I took over for a founder and the business was running. And I thought that I kind of knew, you know, how to grow a business from that standpoint. But that business had resources and tools. And when I started this business with nothing, and, you know, we didn't have any of those things and we weren't known in the market. I had some relationships, but they knew me for something else. You know, how difficult it actually is to get things going. And one of the things that I decided early on was I got to play two games. I got to play short term because we got to get revenue now. You know, we got to keep things going in the short term. But I'm also at the same time always going to be looking at how do I play the long game? Because that's how you ultimately win. And at a certain point, the long game work that you've done, that groundwork that you've laid begins to take over like a flywheel. And now all of the short-term hustling that you're doing to kind of get things off the ground becomes a whole lot less necessary. And that's really, you know, when I think about pre-selling, pre-selling is a longer-term strategy. It doesn't mean it, you know, it's going to take 10 years. It can deliver results in six months, you know, it can deliver results in a year, sometimes less than that, depending on how you do it. But you've got to be kind of playing both of those. And it can be really, really difficult to do because you're trying to sort of serve two masters as you do it. But if you're not playing that long-term game, then you're stuck on a hamster wheel. You're always trying to make today's effort pay tomorrow's bills. And if you stumble at all in that, you're in big trouble. You know, we had a situation here earlier this year where, you know, my wife was ill for a little bit and it took my focus away from the business for probably four to six weeks, something like that. Well, I've got a team that's delivering for our clients. And so operationally we kept going, but because I've got this flywheel of marketing, we really didn't see a drop in lead flow or any of that because the flywheel kept, it just kept going. And it was pretty easy because I built that intentionally. It's pretty easy for me to maintain while I, you know, was focused over here, you know, I didn't have to put in quite as much effort. Whereas if I had been scrambling to get clients in the door, like I was when I first started the business, where today's effort had to pay tomorrow's bills, I'd have been in real trouble. As you described there, I'm thinking a number of people that I know who have either their entrepreneur, solopreneur, they have a smaller private firm service business. And oftentimes it's that founder or the leader is really the 
either primary or sole messenger. They're the person that's supposed to be developing the relationships. They're the closer. They're the ones who can tell the story better than anyone else. And if you don't have a team and if you don't have some processes that are built in, you know, your ability to shift focus where it needed to be for four weeks, six weeks, whatever that period of time, boy, you could really get stuck. Oh, absolutely. So Jim, you mentioned kind of understanding your ideal client, the problems and the challenges that they face. That's often a big disconnect. When you go out to the market and you're solution or product focused, you're out of tune with the way that your potential clients actually think. They're usually not running around looking for solutions. They're running around worried about problems and actually not even problems. They're worried about the consequences of the problems that they have. Understanding that distinction, I think, is really important. So I think of a problem as sort of the surface level, how someone would describe it. But when they're ready to spend money, they're spending money to alleviate the consequence of that problem. That's what's causing the pain. And that's usually a few layers down. And you've got to begin mapping not only what those problems are, but the consequences. And I'll tell you, you know, when I was working in engineering and working with a bunch of professionals, one of the things that I noticed then is that a lot of my peers were so focused because they were experts at what they did, right? They were so focused on the fact that, well, people just aren't doing this the right way, right? They knew because they were expert at something that there was a more optimal solution. However, their clients we're doing a different calculation. They were going, well, yeah, there may be a more optimal way to do it, but this way is good enough for what we need, right? And so you can sort of fall in love with the problem that you solve and end up like, you know, Don Quixote chasing windmills and miss the whole point. If what we're really here to do is to serve people and to deliver relief for them, you know, and that relief might be literal relief alleviating a negative consequence. It could be relief in, you know, helping them achieve a really positive consequence. If you can't communicate to them at that level and recognize it at that level, you're going to have a really, really hard time making any progress and having anybody actually listen to you because they're thinking about it differently. Oftentimes we, if, if we're selling something, think about our elevator pitch, but think of it from the buyer standpoint, what's their elevator rant? Was the thing that they would say, we can't get so-and-so to work the right way, or we're frustrated by this or that. And if you're really an authority, you've got to be able to not only help put a label on that issue, but as you say, find out what the root causes are, how you can address it, and what success will look like in terms of, like you say, taking out unnecessary costs or risks or building opportunities as well. So I think what you're talking about here, I love the fact you kind of falling in love with your solutions or falling in love with your approach. I found particularly from a lot of people in areas like engineering, or it's difficult that they got to be able to step up a little bit and have the more business level conversation and establish the authority there. Well, and we even see it in product businesses, particularly in businesses where you're selling a very specialized product, you know, and you think your product has got certain advantages over the competition and you begin to fall in love with what those advantages are. And those are great, but they're only great to the extent that they solve a problem that the customer cares about. Steve, at least a couple more things that I, I would love to talk about in this conversation, because this is so foundationally good. In a few moments, I want to talk about, because you use a variety of tools, including a podcast, in order to help find opportunities, connect, position your services in the right way. But I also know that you have some strong views about pricing. And I see a lot of 
service businesses, experts, they will get themselves in a knot over pricing. And I think there is a great spirit of humility and of trying to do the right thing for the client that is like, well, I'm not sure we should even be charging as much as we are. But I find that oftentimes a lot of businesses should be raising their fees as a signal to the marketplace. I'm curious as to your view about pricing and how a service business in particular can adjust their pricing upwards without turning the market off. Well, pricing is a fundamental business strategy. And too often we approach it as if it's just something we do. We're going to be, you know, at the industry. We saw this in my first business all the time. And anytime you get around a group of business owners, you know, go to a conference or something, there's going to be a collection at the cocktail hour over in the corner of people who are aggravated as they could possibly be because the guy on the other side of the room is lowballing everybody, right? And he's stealing all the business and how dare he and people get really fired up about this. And the fact is that low price is a strategy, high price is a strategy, and average price is a strategy. I personally believe that low price is always a losing strategy. I have yet to see a situation where over the long term, a business has won and survived with that. Mm -hmm. And if you want to look at the retail examples of it, Sears, which was the low price leader for over 100 years, is gone. Walmart, which is the one that dethroned them, is now in the fight of their life over low price and convenience with Amazon. And Amazon's going to have somebody come along sooner or later. It's inevitable. It's hard to win at low price because there's a fundamental floor to that at zero. And the other end of the spectrum, high price, there's no ceiling to it. If there were a ceiling, then there were no people in the world that bought because of something was simply just because it was high price, then you wouldn't have Apple computer because they're priced far more than any of their competitors that are all commodities, right? But I believe they're the number one or number two highest valued company in the world. Yes. You wouldn't have Mercedes Benz. You wouldn't have Rolls Royce. You wouldn't have any luxury car that most of the people who are listening to this are probably driving around in right? We'd all be driving Yugos. <laughs> if you could still find those, they were certainly cheap. They were cheap. You know, so high price is a strategy. There's no ceiling to it. There is someone out there who will pay whatever price you put on it if you position it the right way. What they're not likely to pay for is you know, a service where it's triple the price, but exactly what they got at the base price, right? There needs to be more there. The place you don't want to be is in the middle. I think in the middle, you're dead because there's somebody that's going to undercut you, but you don't have enough profit to deliver a really premium experience. And so if you're going to go high priced, go high enough that it's creating so much profit that you can do some things that your, you know, the very select number of clients that you want to serve will just absolutely love. They look at it as being worth paying more for. And I think that's the winning strategy in almost every case. And for most service-based businesses, for sure, you're most of the time you're underpriced. I mean, almost probably 95% of the ones that we work with when we first work with them, we look at their pricing structure and we go, well, I know how I can get you more revenue almost immediately. Let's just add a zero. Mm -hmm. They're amazed. You know, they'll try it out on the, you know, in the next sales presentation they have. And they're amazed. They'll call me. Oh, they didn't even question it. 
like, yeah, no kidding. How much have you lost? Because you weren't doing this two years ago. Interesting. And if you have been able to define your value in terms of business value for the buyer, you know, chances are the cost of the, the fee that you have, the price that you have pales in comparison to the money that you can save, the revenue, the incremental revenue you can help a, a client produce, the less risk that they and exposure that they have, all of those sorts of things. So yeah, they'll happily, if, if I can spend a dollar with you, Steve, and you give me two or three or four or $5 back, I'm going to keep spending that dollar with you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk. You have a very interesting approach as well. So not only with the clients that you deal with, but in terms of, you know, you're a seller, you're a, a service provider yourself. You have these tools that we talked about. You're running different campaigns and doing different things, but you also are a podcast host. So congratulations for your courage in doing that. You've got an audience. You're offering tips and insights and interviewing business leaders yourself. What does that serve for you with the Unstoppable CEO? What's kind of been your approach there? Because that's an investment of time and money. And then are there learnings from this process, Steve, that our listeners could take from this, even if they're not podcast hosts? We have learned an awful lot. I'm now about seven years into podcasting. I started my first podcast in 2012. It lasted for about a year. And we can talk about why it ended, but um, I picked it back up again in, I guess, early 2017. So we're two and a half years into the Unstoppable CEO podcast. If I read the metrics correctly, most of the podcasts on iTunes are not active. There's not been new content within like some 90-day period or six months, whatever the case might be. And it doesn't mean that every podcast needs to go on forever. Sometimes you just simply want to create a body of content. You move on to the next thing. But what was it when you first set that up and why you retired it? And then what led you to pick it up again in 2017? Well, it worked in 2012. And we got clients. We got busy. At the time, I didn't have a team to help me produce the podcast. And, you know, being a kind of a technical guy and marketer, I took on doing some of that myself and it was a huge mistake. And so we did 52 episodes, which is, I think the average number of episodes for a podcast in iTunes is like six. Yes. So we beat the average by quite a bit (laughs) and it worked really well. I built relationships with those 52 people. And I think the primary purpose of a podcast is to build relationships with the people that you interview. You can build very good relationships with people that you couldn't otherwise get access to. And so we, with our clients now, we've developed a method we call podcast prospecting, where they're using it to go get in front of prospects and with influencers that can refer them. But, you know, back then I didn't, I didn't have it that well refined. So I interviewed these people a couple of years later, I wrote my first book, which was Unstoppable Referrals. And I went back to the people that I'd interviewed and said, hey, I've got this book coming out. Would you mind sharing it with you know the people that you know? Out of the 52, 15 of them agreed to share it. And when they shared it, when we launched the second week of July in 2014, I was just astonished because in a week, we moved 5,268 copies of that book. Wow. Now, that didn't put us on the New York Times bestseller list or any of that, but as a young business, first book, our entire email list at the time was only around 1,000 people. And so we immediately got exposure to five times as many people as we had in our entire database. Sure. And Steve, I will just, as context for our message manager listeners, and I may not have the numbers exactly right, but conceptually, 
you sold in a short period of time more than 5,000 copies of your book. The vast majority of business self-help books, that category, never sell 5,000 copies in total. So the number is pretty impressive. And especially if those copies are in front of the very sorts of people that you want to get your message in front of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the average is around 300 copies is what sells yes. of, of business type books. <laughs> the shadow of one's family tree. Yeah, part. right. Exactly. Right. And we just stumbled upon this and it wasn't because, you know, we did anything special, but I'd built relationships with people. They liked me enough. We had enough of a relationship. They felt enough reciprocity because I'd interviewed them and promoted them two years earlier. And I'd kept up with them that they agreed to share this. And so the point is not the 5,000 books, but that's the power of building these relationships and doing it in this way. And so it took me a few years to really have that sink in and understand what had happened there. And as I reflected on it, and so we started another podcast in 2017, and I think we're rounding the corner on 150 episodes here fairly soon. And, and it's been such a tremendous asset in our business. And so when I talk to our clients about it, because what actually came out of that is it transformed what we do for our clients. When we started the podcast, it was just one of our marketing channels. We were doing consulting with clients. They'd fly in, we'd spend a day in a workshop with them. They'd go back and try and implement ideas. And I you know, just would see clients come in again and again and again, going, these are really great strategies. But when I get home, I don't have the resources. I don't have the team. I'm not a master marketer. I'm having trouble implementing this stuff. And what we discovered after a couple of iterations was that, well, if we could do it for them and the podcast was kind of the perfect way to do it for them, because you can take someone who's a business owner who understands their business, understands the message they want to get out, but now they don't have to be a copywriter. They don't have to you know, learn any complicated marketing stuff. If they can pick up a telephone and have a conversation with another person, then they're perfectly qualified to have a podcast. So we began offering that as a service. And one of the things that we've noticed now is that you know our clients are now able to go out and connect with influencers in their industry. We just had, as we're recording this, we just had one of our clients do cold outreach to Tony Horton. I don't know if you know who Tony Horton is. P90X and all of uh, that whole franchise. Yeah, he's the inventor of P90X probably a real celebrity, not just a business celebrity. A lot of people know who he is. Yes. And so we haven't even launched this client's podcast yet. So it's not like you could go check it out in iTunes and see that there's all these episodes. My client just cold emailed him, got a wild hair to do it because my client's kind of a fitness buff. And he said, I have this podcast. It's about entrepreneurship. Would you like to be a guest? He got a reply back from Tony Horton's assistant in like 20 minutes. Yes, we'd love to do it. Please tell us how we schedule that. That's amazing. Now, do you think if you had called up and just said, I'd like to talk to Tony for about 30 to 45 minutes and just ask him about business, do you think you could get through and get that appointment booked? <laughs> not a chance. Yeah, probably not. But because you've got a media platform, even if it's not even a launched media platform and you've got this thing called a podcast, business owners will often jump at the chance. Some celebrities who understand the value of promotion, they will jump at the chance to show up and talk with you. And so it's just a fantastic way to get access to people that you couldn't otherwise get access to, and then to build relationship with them. One of the things that our clients do all the time is they'll use it to go and interview the really strategic prospects that they're trying to get into. And so rather than showing up as a salesperson, 
they show up as almost like a journalist and they build relationship and rapport first. And then they're able to engage in conversation. And, you know, going back to, you mentioned, you know, the elevator pitch. Well, we don't give them an elevator pitch, but if you ask questions, which is, I think, a far better way to approach it, you ask questions of that prospect. Well, what are you struggling with? You know, what are your big goals coming up? That's a natural thing to do at the end of an interview. You find the openings where you can come in and add value with your service or with your product. And, and so we use it in that way. And, and we also use it as a way to get ideas to do the selling for you. So we talk a little bit about pre-selling earlier. You can get on and do a solo episode where you're simply talking about an idea or a philosophy that you have in your business, a belief that you have about this is the way we do things and this is why and why it's best and who it's best for. And you can share that where you know people experience that as though they're sitting across the table from you listening. So it's a real multiplier for getting those ideas out there and having those ideas pre-sell the people you want to do business with. Message managers, I, I think this is really important. Again, whether you just listen to podcasts like this one, or if you're thinking about launching one or leveraging one on your own. In that whole dynamic, Steve, that you just described, here's what doesn't happen. It's not like you're inviting someone to lunch or asking them to, I just want to pick your brain or, hey, come on in and I'll buy you a chicken dinner so you can listen to my pitch or watch my demo. There is value on both sides. And you're actually a podcast interview is you're actually helping the other person to be able to highlight their business highlight their situations and you've created an asset that they can use as well. So it's not like the automated LinkedIn message and then all of a sudden you're, you, you make that connection and then you just dump stuff on the other person is you're actually inviting them into a conversation that will be of some value to them as well. And I think that's just a super important thing to keep in mind as you're doing your outreach and establishing your authority. Steve, there's a, you know, you're probably familiar with Michael Port, who has a thriving business and written a number of best-selling books, including one called Book Yourself Solid. One of Michael Port's mantras is always have something to invite people to, not that they have to endure. That's my <laughs> footnote on it, but it has something to invite people to. And that always can give you a way to prompt a conversation that works for both sides of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's just a brilliant approach to things. And you can invite people to your podcast. You can invite people to a number of things they would have. And I think it's a, it's just, it's a great overall strategy. Steve, if I may, just one more question, going all the way back to when you were in your late twenties and you took over this engineering consulting business and things were in motion, but you're thinking, how can I grow? What am I supposed to do here? And not being a marketing and sales expert, as you admittedly, you were like, where do I start? What am I supposed to do here? And I think a lot of people in service businesses who really know their stuff quite well, when it gets to this area of marketing and sales, it can seem awfully big, awfully squishy, difficult to know where to get started. So is there a common starting point for your new clients and for the people listening to this podcast, you know, hey, where do I start? Where can I put my stake in the ground to see if some of these strategies would actually work? Well, I think the first place to start is always to start with your ideal client and get clear on who that is. And a lot of people don't want to do that because they want to leave the option open that, oh, I'll do business with anybody that shows up and has a heartbeat in a wallet. But, <laughs> you know, the more focused that you get, 
with that definition, the easier all the subsequent decisions become. And once you've identified that, now it becomes very easy to think about who that person is, think about the mindset that they need to have to be a really good customer or client. And then what's the message? I mean, this is Jim, where you're an expert. What's the message that you need to give to them? What's the offer that you need to make? How do you present that in a way that's going to be most valuable that they're going to accept and believe in? And then now figure out, well, what method am I going to use to get that message out? And what most people do is the exact opposite of that. They start with the method to get it out, whether it's, you know, the LinkedIn bot that we talked about or Facebook ads or, you know, print ads or whatever. They go, well, I'm going to do some of that. And then they kind of walk backwards a little bit and they haven't thought about ideal clients. So they're going to come up with message, but the message is going to be all about them and nobody cares. And they probably never get back to who the ideal client is. And they just, they're doing the whole thing backwards, which is why most marketing doesn't work very well. But if you've created an offer that people desperately want, that compels them to want to learn more, then you can mess up a lot of the other parts of that marketing process and it's still going to give you great results. And so I think that's the place to start is who are we doing business with? Who do we really, really, really want to do business with? Our most profitable type of client and the easiest to work with, the one that gets the best results from what we do. And now what do I need to say to them? What's the message got to be that's going to attract them to me? And then if you've got those two things in place, those generally don't change a whole lot, but you can now experiment with all sorts of methods to get in front of them and you're going to have success most anywhere you go. That's terrific. He is Steve Gordon. He is an entrepreneur. He is an author. He is the founder of The Unstoppable CEO and a successful podcast host, not just in terms of attracting listeners, but using it as a vehicle to attract business. So this has been a great conversation there, fellow Gator. Hey, Steve, where can our listeners best find your insights and link with you and connect with you and not to send you a long LinkedIn message reply that's not relevant? But where is the best, how are the best ways that we can keep up with what you're doing? Well, I'd love to connect with anybody listening on LinkedIn, but let's start a real relationship. So feel free to connect with me there. Our website is unstoppableceo.net. And Jim, we've actually set up a page just for your listeners. And when they go to that page, they'll be able to get a copy of my latest book, which is called The Exponential Network Strategy. And it actually explains how we use interviews and podcasts as a way to do a lot of the things that we talked about here today to help grow your business. And there's some other free resources there. We've got a complete guide on pre-selling and how to use ideas to sell. So you can get all of that. It's all free. And if you go to unstoppableceo.net slash M-Y-M, that's so unstoppableceo.net slash MYM. Your listeners can find that. Thank you, Steve. That's very generous. And thank you again for your time and your generosity coming in here on the Manager Message podcast. Thanks, Jim. My thanks to Steve Gordon for joining us on the podcast. And I'm particularly happy that you jumped in as well. Whether you are a returning message manager, perhaps this is your first time in. We continue to build momentum here because so many of you have been recommending us to friends and colleagues and leaving those five-star ratings, by the way. If you haven't yet done so, please take just a moment and tap subscribe and offer your five-star rating and review on the way out. That helps the robots let other professionals know about this podcast so they can find it valuable as well. 
There's another free business messaging resource available to you. One you can read, the Message Manager Memo. It comes to your email inbox each week, a brief read with something you can put to work right away. You can sign up on my website, jimcarr.com. That's spelled K-A-R-R-H. And while you are there, you likely know of a company or a professional association full of people looking for ways to improve their professional conversations as a means to grow their business. On my website, you'll see a speaking page as well as a related page just for event professionals, the people trying to find speakers and other ideas and content for making in-person events memorable and valuable. I list a number of keynote and session topics. They're all based upon practical learnings from my new book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. All of them are tailored to the themes of your meeting and the needs of your participants and the business impact that you need to have. My programs are designed to not only be engaging in the moment, but also to provide the basis for business growth for months and even years afterward. You may email me directly at jim at jimcar.com. We can set up a time to talk by phone if you like. My direct number is also on the website. Let's talk. And until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.